Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay you your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? he asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son, whom she named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. Amen. You may be seated this morning. As you're seated, this is your first time with us. We always start off before we get into the sermon and we pray. And so when I say we pray, that means that this is an opportunity for you not just to listen to me pray, but an opportunity for you to pray as well. Because the most important thing you'll do here this morning is not listen to the sermon, it's not singing. The most important thing you'll do is right now pray. Because we're praying that you will hear from the Holy Spirit because I've got nothing. The Holy Spirit's got everything. You need to hear from him and not me. So let's pray right now. So God, we're thankful to be here. 
God, open my spiritual eyes and ears. Can you pray that right now, just in your heart? I want to hear from you. Speak right to my need. Convict me where I need conviction. Encourage me where I need encouragement. Remove all the distractions from my mind and help me focus in on what you're doing and what you're saying. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, once again, this is your first Sunday with us. We are in the book of Exodus. Started last week. This is our second week on this journey. And this morning, the title of the message is Learning the Hard Way. Some of you may be thinking, is there another way? I didn't either. This is from experience I'll be speaking to. This isn't just something in theory this morning. This is something that I don't know about you. Some of you, you may feel the same way I do. It's like this is the only way. It seems like I learn anything. Now, speaking of learning stuff, there's a book called Fame Junkies. And there is um, some researchers from England and the United States that conducted a study in which 307 participants were asked questions that gauged their attitudes towards religion and towards their favorite celebrities. The final paper from the research titled, Thou Shalt Not Worship No Other Gods Unless They Are Celebrities, found that as religiosity increases for both men and women, the tendency to worship celebrities decreases. So what they found is, is that whenever we're worshiping the right thing, we tend to not worship the wrong thing. So, I mean, you may say, you know, what am I doing here this morning? Well, hey, listen, one of the things that we all are doing here this morning is we are tuning our hearts back into God, that this is, he is the ultimate one that needs to be worshiped and nothing or no one else, because everybody, everywhere is worshiping something all the time. And if I'm not worshiping the right thing, then I'll be worshiping the wrong thing. I mean, it's, it's, we say this all the time around here. One of the most dangerous things for all of us isn't that we're loving the wrong things. It's that we're loving the right things in the wrong order. So, I mean, I, if I'm going to love God supremely, that's going to take some proactive work on my end. And that's, that's, that's a big reason why we are here this morning singing, studying, fellowshipping, communing together. Because we're trying to get our hearts tuned back in the way that it should be tuned in. And we have got, I mean, like, you know, it seems like if you go back and you study culture through history, we've always struggled with, with worshiping celebrities. And today they call it celebrity worship syndrome. And this, is, this is from the connection between celebrity worship syndrome and teen mental health. Our teenagers, whenever they begin to worship these celebrities, I guess this is what they found out, that, that they're going to have these symptoms of depression and anxiety. Lower levels of critical thinking and cognitive abilities. Anybody got any teenagers? <laughs> Impaired social skills. Maladaptive daydreaming. That means that they just, all the time, they're just thinking about this celebrity. That interferes with work, school, or relationships. A desire for fame, which is often linked with a lack of self-acceptance, compulsive buying and materialism, difficulties with romantic relationships. Does that sound like a problem? That's a pretty, I mean, that's like a pretty serious problem right there. Would you not agree with me on that? And so that we, we have these, we're, and here's what happens. We in church, church culture in America, we have the same problem with worshiping celebrities. See, we think if God could only get a hold of, man, that person, 
that athlete, that movie star, or whatever it is that has all this great influence and all that, man, if God could just get a hold of them, they could have so much impact for the kingdom of God, so many people would get saved. Now listen, some of you, you've got enough life experience that you've seen what happens when some of these celebrities, all of a sudden, they say, I'm a born-again Christian, and we put them on all the talk shows, and they write books and all this, and a few months later, they're acting a fool. And you're like, man, I wish they just would have kept their mouth shut and no one would have interviewed them. You've seen that happen. Because listen, it, it's just, let's, just, let's just put it this way, though. Let's say some of the most famous, influential people in our world all got saved today. I mean, they, I mean, they got really saved. And then you, you, we saw the kingdom of God just spread. Like We saw people, as a result of that, just getting genuinely saved after that. Do you know what we would do? We would step back and go, see? That's what influence does. That's what happens when rich and famous people do something. Instead of looking back and saying, look, that's what God did. See, because listen, God does not need somebody to be famous for him. He does not need to borrow somebody's fame and somebody's name. His name is the renown. His name is a name above every name. He is the one that, he is the famous one. He's the one that all of our hearts should be tuned to. And here's what God does. You look at the Bible and you look throughout all Christian history and here's what God does. God finds somebody in obscurity and nobody from nowhere and uses them in a mighty way so he will get the glory. So no one will sit back and be confused and be like thinking, wow, that's a great person right there. Well, they all sat back and go, wow, look at what our great God just did. And what we see here in this story this morning is pretty much the same thing. And see, here's two reasons why we need to cautiously look at this problem by thinking that we need these, these famous, you know, impactful people to be in the kingdom. Because it's this, number one, we can tend to look for people of great influence and think they can do the only, they're the only ones that can do great things for God. That's our number one problem. Number two, that too causes us to look outwardly rather than inwardly. Because we're thinking, I'm a nobody from nowhere. What can I do? And see, that's the whole point of story after story in the Bible. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God already is doing. And whether or not we can recognize that and whether or not we want to join him in, he allows us. I mean, like, man, that, that makes me want to jump up and down and scream Pentecostal right now that God will allow us to join him in what he's doing, even in our mess, even in our stupidity, even in, in the lackings that we have, God wants us to join him. You should be excited about that. You should look a lot more excited than you are right now. <laughs> man, that's pretty pitiful, one golf clap, all right. That's who we are, God. He knows that's who we are. It's good. It's all good. Here we are, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Now, a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. That doesn't make, to us, we look at that, and we're like, okay, just skim right through that. That will be a big deal later on. As we continue through Exodus, we'll get to a point where we're like, you'll be like, okay, I see now why that was a big deal. So just hold on. We'll get there in a few years. Number two, <laughs> the woman became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, when she saw that he was good, there's parallels in the book of Exodus. Whenever God came down and he made creation, he saw that it was, there's a parallel right here, same Hebrew word used there. She hid him for three months. Why is she hiding him for three months? Because we looked at last week, Pharaoh's put out an edict to have all of the, all of the Hebrew sons thrown into the Nile, Okay? So now she's hiding him, 
Because everybody else, their little babies, are getting thrown into the Nile River. This is the Nile River. It's a place of execution. It is a place of death, okay? It is a horrid thing that's happening here. So she sees it as good, and she hides him for three months. But when she can no longer hide him, there's probably all kinds of people that are coming in, doing raids and getting the kids. She's seeing this happening with her neighbors, and she's thinking, okay, I've got to do something. This is getting too dangerous here. She took a papyrus basket. Hebrew right, right here is tabal. This is, listen, only two times this Hebrew word is used. It's used here, and it's used with the ark. It could be translated, she put him in a papyrus ark. Now, the, why is that important? Because, once again, we strike another parallel. Because whenever Noah, a righteous man, was saved, what was he saved from? He was saved from flood, water. What was executing everybody else, God saved him through the ark. Are you tracking with it now? So now we're going to have Moses going to be saved in the place of death, in the water. He's going to be placed in the water. Just like Pharaoh said, put him in the water. Oh, see, this is good. Put him in the water. But he's not just in the water. He's in the ark. And what does the ark represent? It represents salvation in Christ Jesus. See, when you're saved, the Bible says it over and over again. You are in Christ Jesus. He is your salvation. Moses, listen, the baby's not swimming. The baby's not guiding. The baby's not doing anything. It's just in the ark. You're not saving yourself. You're incapable. You can't swim. You can't make it up river. You can't dodge a crocodile, whatever it is. You've got to have somebody else to save you. That is Jesus Christ. He is the ark. She's got the asphalt. She cleaned that thing all up, made it look good. She placed the child in it. She set him among the reeds by the bank of the Nile with his crocodiles in the water, dogs running down the side of the river, all kinds of reasons why this should not work except for the providence of God. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what the, I would put, to see how God providentially worked this thing out. She's back off. See, I don't think she's back off the distance. Twitter and saying, man, I hope a dog or a crocodile doesn't get him. I think she's off the distance saying, let's see what God does. See, listen, that's the kind of attitude that we need to have. That's what we need to learn. Because we back up, we get all fearful, and we start twirling around. We think, oh, man, the crocodile's going to get us, the doll's going to get us. This is it. There's no way this is going to work out. All the rest of the babies are being executed. Everything else is going wrong. There's no way this can go right. See, when we do that, we take out the providence of God. When we remove that from the equation, you will be filled with fear. Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, wow, I'm seeing more parallels right here. She went down, and she saw, what she's looking about this. The Bible says God came down, and he saw the affliction of his people. We'll see that later on in Exodus. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm not saying that Pharaoh's daughter is God. I'm saying she's joining God in what God's doing. Oh, by the way, where'd all the men go? Where'd all the men go in the story? Where, what, what about Moses' dad? Well, now all of a sudden we're talking about the mom and the, and the sister, and now we're talking about faith. Why are we talking about all the women? Because you are reading a book that was written right in the middle of a culture that thought that the women were right about the level of livestock. So when they read it in this, when they read it originally, they're like, oh, no doubt this is God. 
Because there's no powerful man. We got women that are, listen, we got the daughters that are rescuing the sons. God is using the daughters to save the sons. Us in our culture, they, that doesn't mean very much, but back then, that meant a lot to them. So he went down to bathe at the Nile River with her servant girl, girls, walked along the riverbank. She saw, I see the providence of God. She saw the basket among the reeds. She sent her slave girls. See, God came down, he saw, and he sent his, his servant Moses in to draw them out of the water. They opened it, and she saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. God stirred in her heart. She felt sorry for him. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew boys that my dad, my dad said, I've all got to be executed. But you see, the providence of God is working right here. It's overruling what Pharaoh has said. Then Moses' sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, man, she comes down off this distance. She comes up close. And she, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse a boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother, Moses' mother. I see God's providence all over this. God's providence caused the reeds to hold back the basket close to the shore, kept it from floating downstream with the current. God's providence kept the crocodiles or the passing dogs from threatening the child. God's providence caused Pharaoh's daughter to be at the right place at the right time. God's providence caused Pharaoh's daughter to glance in the right direction and to see the basket. God's providence caused the baby to cry at just the right moment. Right when Pharaoh's daughter lifted the lid of the basket, God's providence aroused a deep compassion. There's not a single miracle that happens thus far, but it's all God's providence. See, because some People today are so desperately wanting a miracle from God, and they're forgetting this is a providential God. He's working in all the circumstances. No, 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 see, that's, he's working right here and right now. The fact that you're sitting here right now, and you and I are looking at these scriptures, this is part of God's providential plan for your life. He's working through this. The struggles that you had this past week, that's part of God's providence. The struggles you may have had this morning, I mean, you may have had some fights on the way to church this morning. You may say, man, how on earth is that God's providence? I mean, I got so mad at my kids, I was about to lose my ever-loving mind. How is that part of God's providence? Okay, listen, listen, here's what I'm tell you. If you will allow it, there's something in there called sanctification. Sometimes God puts you in difficult situations and with difficult people, and he is sanctifying you. He is trying to help you with that baby flesh in you that gets so easily offended and gets your feelings hurt and wants everything your way. Y'all were all happy till I said that. <laughs> I'm in there with you. Man, my baby flesh has got to be sanctified all the time. So, I mean, what? I mean, what is the providence of God? Man, it is God that is catching everything that we mess up and straightening it out and getting it to where we need to be and where he, his kingdom, is reigning and ruling over everything. Are you in or are you out? That's really what it comes down to. You in on his kingdom or you on your kingdom? Because, man, if you're fighting his kingdom, then the same thing will happen to us that happened to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's fighting his kingdom, and the more he fought his kingdom, the more he ratcheted around around his own neck, and the more... Pharaoh promoted God's kingdom. You can't stop it. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, 
take this child, <laughs> take your baby, go nurse him, and I'm going to pay you wages to go take care of your kid. You think that she had a problem with that? She's probably good with that, wasn't she, huh? There, so once again, you're seeing the providence of God. So the woman took the boy and she nursed him. Do you think that she was filled with joy that day? Do you think that her faith was, was, was encouraged? Do you think that her faith grew through that? And that man, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, which is, which is not a Hebrew name. It could, be, it could go either way. But it's mainly Egyptian name because she said, I drew him out of the water. And that's what it means to draw out of the water. Now, is that prophetic of what he will do? When, he, when, when, when God draws the, the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, and what do they go through? They go through what? The Red Sea? Will they go through there? Yeah. I mean, he will draw him out. Years later, after Moses had grown up, so Stephen tells us in his sermon in Acts, he went through Acts with us. Stephen tells us he's 40 years old at this point. So he's 40 years old, he's growing up, he went out. See, here's the problem. When I've just, done a, just, a, just read this text, I just see one, I think that one day he's, he's walking around the palace, here he is. He's, he's the grandson of Pharaoh, walking around the palace, and thinks one day, I'm just gonna go out there and check out those Hebrew slaves, see how they're doing. Okay, listen, what we don't see here and what the theologians say in the text is, is that he made a decision right here. So it wasn't just him going out to go, go ride around and see how things were. He's leaving behind Egypt. He's leaving behind Pharaoh's house. He's leaving behind his privilege. Here's what you understand. He was a commander of the army of Egypt as Pharaoh's grandson. He had lived a, lived a life of wealth and privilege. Never served anybody. He leaves all that behind. The providence of God was stirring him out, and he didn't know why, but there he goes. He goes out there, and what it says is it says, so he went out to his own people, and he observed their forced labor. Here's what it says in Hebrews. By faith, when Moses had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You see, he left that behind. He chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So how that would translate over to you and I today would be if we decided that we did not want to live for the kingdom of this world, but that we decided we want to live for the kingdom of God. If we're willing to forsake everything and to go follow Jesus, everything that this world has to offer, that's how that would translate over to us today. So he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead, and he hid him in the sand. Because here's what you have to say. You have to see this. There is what the world would say an instinct in him and what we would say a calling in him. A calling to be a deliverer. Okay, it's in him. God put that in him from birth. It's not like one day he just developed it. One day he just said, oh, well, it was there from the very beginning. See, this is what I'm telling you. Every single one of you have got a calling. Regardless of whether or not you recognize today and what it is, you have a, God has put that in you from birth. There's something, a calling in you. Neuroscientists have identified human beings as being driven by seven ancient instincts, a primary process of effective systems. <laughs> These are, they name them off, seeking, Anger, fear, panic, grief, care, pleasure, lust, and play. Interestingly, it is thought that the most powerful instinct is seeking. That isn't interesting to me. That's what I would expect. Because I'm, I'm not looking at this from a worldly standpoint. I'm looking at this from a scriptural standpoint. 
From a scriptural standpoint, it would make, it would make sense to me that God would put the most, the most impulsive thing inside of every human being is to be a seeker. Why? Because God wants us seeking him. Wants us to be a drive within us that whenever he comes for us, that, man, we are coming after him. That, that is an impulse inside every single one of us. Makes sense to me. Hey, listen, it's amazing. You live long enough and you watch secular science. You know, it's like this big deal between secular scientists and between scriptures. And like these secular scientists, they're, they're climbing this wall. It's like this. They're climbing this wall trying to prove the scripture to be wrong. And they climb, they climb, they climb. And it's like the theologians are up the top of the wall watching. And finally, when the scientists, when they get to the very top and they finally, if they're really going to be honest with what their research is, they all fall right over in the scriptures every time. It all just eventually comes into the Bible. So, I mean, I look at that, and I'm like, man, that doesn't make, that's not, and these other ones right here, I see a lot of the sin nature in that. No big surprise there. The next day, he went out. Moses went out, and he saw two Hebrews fighting. Now, the first time he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he, he kills the Egyptian. I see a parallel here. The parallel is this. God is going to destroy the Egyptians when he delivers the Hebrews, Okay? out of bondage. And now here he sees two Hebrews fighting each other. He's got this calling of justice, of a deliverer. Look at this. It says that, that when he saw the two fighting, he asked the one who's in the wrong. See, there's a justice that God put his hand because God is going to give him the law, the Ten Commandments. He'll be the one God will use him to write the law. Why are you attacking your neighbor? Well, justice right here. This isn't right. Who made you commander and judge over us? The man replied. He's no longer, this is why the implication to me is he's no longer the commander of the army in Egypt. He's now just, he's left all that behind. So who do you think you are? Are you God? Now, Moses has been trying to play God. When he killed the Egyptian, he tried to be God there. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and he thought, what I did is certainly known. He became afraid. That's the opposite of faith right there. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. Now, before I got this study, that always surprised me. Like, man, this is his grandfather. But then whenever you put it in context and you say the implication is that he left Egypt behind, then the grandfather would be mad. It's like now he's got his chance to get him. Just implication. So he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in the land of Midian. So here's Egypt right here, and look at how far he went all the way down here. This is Midian. That is a long ways right there away. Listen, this guy right here, Goran Larson, he studied ancient um, Egyptian text, and this is what he says. The ancient Egyptian text expressed a deep contempt of manual labor while stressing the value of study. Studies lead to a life far away from dust, dirt, and toil under harsh taskmasters. I wish somebody would have told me that when I was in high school. <laughs> These texts emphasize the extremely low status of the working class in ancient Egyptian society. Here's the interesting thing was. The pyramids have already been built by this time, okay? Go watch a documentary on how they built the pyramids. No one really knows. <laughs> You've got these massive structures out in the middle of the, the desert and these perfectly sized rocks that are put on top. And they're like, they don't really know. They, got, they just speculate on how that was done. They were, listen, 
These Egyptians, they were doing dental work, and they were already doing brain surgery at the time of Moses. Now, whether or not it was successful or not, we don't know, but they were doing it. I mean, every kind of math, they were far excelling, and these were not just, you know, backwoods, stupid, ignorant, prehistoric people. That's what I want you to understand. Very educated. I mean, man, when he came, and Moses grew up in that. Are you with me now? He was educated in that. Every single, I mean, like the highest education level, Moses was exposed to that. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went out to live in the land of me, and he sat down all that way, and here he is by himself. He must have been thinking, my life was a waste. I just messed up so bad, there's no hope for me now. That whole thing inside of me, that calling to be a deliverer, I'm not going to be doing anything now. See, listen. Some of you, you know that feeling when you feel like you messed up too bad for God to use you. And you think only God can use only those people that are good. Only those people who have not made mistakes. And that is a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. See, once again, you got to come back and look at what God's doing here in Moses. Was Moses a capable deliverer before he left? He was highly capable. I mean, like if I go, you put me back and you put me in the story, I'd be like, man, I'd be trying to leverage my, my social place there in Egypt as, as, you know, the commander of the Egyptian army. I'd be trying to, to leverage that to try to free those, I mean, try to do what God wanted me to do. That would be the thing. And listen, God removes him totally from Egypt. Listen, he gets Moses out of Egypt, but now he's got to get Egypt out of Moses. All of that stuff that we would look at and go, wow, if they only came to Jesus, they could do such great things for Jesus. <laughs> there he is, down by the well. Moses was a child of a slave and a son of a queen. Look at these contrasts. He was born in a hut and he lived in a palace. He inherited poverty yet enjoyed unlimited wealth. Moses was a leader of armies yet a keeper of flocks. This man was the mightiest of warriors and the meekest of men. He was educated in the court of the king, and he dwelt in the desert. Moses had the wisdom of Egypt and the faith of a child. He was fitted for the city but wandered in the wilderness. Moses was backward in speech, but he talked with God. He was a fugitive from Pharaoh, and he was an ambassador of heaven. Now the priest of Midian the priests of Midian. Why would it say the priests of Midian? See, you're to understand. The Midianites, they came from Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith, you know? That's where the Midianites came from. So when it's, it's important to us that we understand something. Why does it say the priests of Midian? Evidently, this guy had some kind of faith inside of him. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now, he had seven daughters. They came to draw water, and they filled the troughs with water and their father's flock. So, but then some of the shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to the rescue, and he watered their flocks. Okay, now wait a second. Here, here's what you have to understand. I watched this last night. I got a little YouTube video from the Ten Commandments. When Charlton Heston came out there with this big stick and started beating down the dude, you know. 1950s is when that was made, and it's pretty sad compared to what we have today. But here's what you understand. Moses is one man, and we've got a team of shepherds. Okay? Moses is a commander of the Egyptian army. 
So when these dudes come out, Moses comes out by himself, either by force or by intimidation, the other dudes back down and go. And then he, see, because he's got the calling to be a deliverer, he rescued them. And then he watered, their, there's water once again, are you seeing the parallels? He's doing what he's going to be doing in the future. He, they watered, their, the first time he probably served anybody his whole life. Never been serving, everybody else always served him. See, because, listen, the reason he's doing the serving now is because he's getting to eat humble pie for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day now. When you start eating humble pie for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, all of a sudden you don't have a problem serving other people. But when you never, when you never touch humble pie, you don't expect to be, you shouldn't be doing any kind of serving. You think everybody else should be serving you. Moses had the instincts or the calling, we would say, of a deliverer, but Moses lacked patience. We see that whenever he killed the Egyptian. And, and also, too, and he, and he lacked wisdom. We see that when that happened as well. He lacked faith, and he lacked theology. See, because if, we're going, if he's going to be a deliverer, he's going to have to have patience, wisdom, faith. And he's got to understand who God is. Theology is a study of God. Who's going to teach him theology? Glad you asked that question. We'll see in just a moment. See, there's a difference between having the desire and the ability and having the grit and the conviction to be consistent. Every single one of y'all know how that applies. To some area in your life or your experience, because you've seen the people, or you've been the one that had the desire and the ability, but not the grit and the conviction. Because how do you build grit and conviction? You don't build it in the classroom. When they return to their father, Raul, that's Jethro. I don't know why we got Raul right there. Y'all know Jethro. He asked, why have you come back so, he asked his daughters, man, they came, why did you get, how did you get back they never got back this quickly. They answered, man, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us, and he wired our flock. Man, it was like supercharged fast time, man. Here we are, Dad. So where is he? He asked his daughters, why did you leave that man behind? That dude's a keeper. Go get him. <laughs> Invite him over. Let's, have, let's feed him some food. Why did Jethro think that? Think of the story. Listen, just think of the story. This one dude came and rescued his seven daughters from a group of men. Now, you men that have got daughters, if somebody rescues your daughter, you want to invite him over to dinner. Especially if it's one dude and he, not, he beat down seven other dudes. Moses agreed to stay with a man, and he gave him his daughter Zephora to Moses in marriage. Here's what God gave Moses. He gave him a mentor in Jethro. Jethro's the one that taught him theology, the priest of Midian. He didn't learn theology in Egypt. And I know we got great stories about his mother. He was too young when his mother turned him over to Pharaoh. I mean, then there's all these other speculation came from. Maybe it did. I don't know. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that out here, 40 years in the wilderness, this is where God starts to build grit and conviction in the man that's got the ability and the talent. He's got to have a mentor. He's got to, now he's got a location. Do you know what? When he, listen, do you know where the mountain of God is? It's in Midian, not in Egypt. He's not going to see and hear from God in Egypt. You know what Egypt represents, right? It represents the world you live in. Because in the Bible, we see the wilderness is a good place over and over again. 
John the Baptist went out in the wilderness. Jesus went out into the wilderness and won back the kingdom authority that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. You got Elijah going out into the wilderness, and that's where he hears the still, small voice of God. In the Bible, the wilderness is a place where people meet God. And in our Christian culture today, the wilderness is something that's got to be fixed. And he gave it an occupation. And we read in Genesis that the Egyptians despise shepherds. He's a shepherd. He's out there in this barren land, and he's leading these sheep around, and he's learning how to live in this land and learning how to lead sheep. Is he going to do that? That's exactly where he's going to take these people right to this place. He's going to take when he delivers. This is God. Listen, God is building. Hmm. Because when you're out there on the backside of the wilderness, you don't see it. You think you messed up too bad. I must be forsaken of God. God has forgotten about me out here. Man, 40 years. See, some of you right now, you are there. You're there. You don't want to be there. You want to be back in Egypt. You want to be back where life was good. And you're wondering, why, why, why am I here? And I'm telling you right now, it may just be that God is building something into you. It may just be that God is getting you to the place where you now can see and hear him. He gave him an occupation and he gave him time. Because you, listen, there's no shortcuts to grit and conviction. You can't, you can't, like, I'm going to go read a book. I'm going to have grit and conviction. You know, you can't, that doesn't happen. The book may help you in that development, but it's going to take time. It's going to take suffering. It's going to take the wilderness. It's going to take the fire. It's going to take hard times to build that. Man, when I was 26 years old, took my first church to be a pastor at 26 years old. Man, I thought I was God's gift to the church. I went in there and started preaching. Those little old ladies like, oh, you're going to be the next Billy Graham. You are the greatest preacher. We, you're wonderful. And I was like, man, this is great, you know. And you know, I'm preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, just preaching, preaching, preaching. And a few months later, I realized that sheep have teeth. When the honeymoon was over, then I was thinking, I must have went to the wrong church wrong place and let me tell you something it's all about building grit and conviction she gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom for he said I have been a resident alien in a foreign land does that sound like some old Christian hymns some old hymns out of the old hymn books some of y'all used to sing huh all the young people are like what's a hymn book Man, that, that is us right there. I mean, like, when we are in a world right now as Christians, you are living in a, your home is in heaven. Okay? And like, we, we, we should be homesick. If I'm in love with this world, I'm not homesick. I mean, if you're sitting here right now and you're like, man, listen, I'm not homesick, then I want to nicely tell you you are in love with the world. Because if you are in love with heaven, you'll be homesick right now. Man, I want to show you one of the hardest verses in the Bible to understand. It's speaking about Jesus, Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. Although he was a son, capitalized, because speaking of Jesus and deity here, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Man, 
After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So if that's, if that's speaking of Jesus from what he suffered, then how do we think today in our Christian culture that if you do the right things, you're going to have an easy life? If you're going to serve God, then you're going to have lots of promotions at work and lots of money, and you'll never get sick. Where in the Bible does it say that? I mean, it says quite the opposite, because the suffering right here is what's getting us ready for eternity there. It's getting us to where we don't fall. Listen. As we get older, life gets more painful for a reason. Physically painful for a reason. Because God is trying to get us ready for something coming. Where there is no pain. Where there is no heartache. Where there is no sad goodbyes. Man, you live long enough, you have to say some sad goodbyes to people you love dearly. You see, God is getting you ready for your home, your eternal home. This is so short here and now compared to eternity. And all you got is one chance. Here's what John Flavel said. Concerning the study of providence, words cannot express the delight we might find in such an employment. Oh, reader, what a life of pleasure by noticing the ways of providence towards you. What a heaven upon earth you may have. Taste and see the glory of the study of providence. What John Flavel was saying right there is he was saying, man, that when you realize that everything that happens in your life, it's a part of God's providence, it changes the way you face everything. That you don't hit a, you don't hit a hard, terrible spot in your life and think, I'm forsaken of God. God's forgotten me, man. This is awful. I'll never live through this. We, now, if, we got, if we understand providence and we understand, God, put this here on me for a reason. And I will be here as long as God wants me to. And I need to learn what God wants me to learn. I need sanctification. See, some of us, we keep circling the wilderness. We can't make it in the promised land because we won't learn what God wants us to learn. We just get mad and frustrated at God. And there's not anything that God ever does that's not good. It's all good. I mean, like, man, David, this is not good. No, no, yeah, it's not good right here and right now. But God has good intentions for you in that pain and that suffering. Why didn't Moses just stay in Egypt? Because God had to build something in him before he could ever even see God. Have we got a whole bunch of people in American Christianity today that are not seeing God? So, were you trying to be God versus were you trusting God? So Moses was trying to be God when he killed the Egyptian. Took matters into his own hands. It comes down to this. One of our greatest struggles for all of us is we want to be in control. Because when I say all this stuff right now that I just got through saying about God's providence, we're all like, yeah, that sounds good in theory, but that's tough in practice. Because, man, when you yank the rug out from under me, I, my first question is, why, God? What did I do wrong? Instead of, oh, man, God is good. God knows where I'm at. God, what do you want me to learn? But here I am. Teach me. Sanctify me. 
I'll stay here as long as you want, Lord, because I know you're good, and I know that you intended this for a good purpose. What are you doing, God? Let me join you in this. You ready to get your feelings hurt? That's why you came this morning, right? Here we go. So you look, some of you right now, you're sitting there right now, and you're like, man, they're not anywhere I'm trying to be God. Okay, so let me ask you. Here it goes. Here's going to be the question right here. You ready for this? Wake up your spouse because you don't want them to miss this because some of y'all, some, they need help, and you're trying to get them. To, here we go. Here's how to evaluate your struggle. What do you get most anxious about, and what do you get most angry about? And right there, you'll find the thing that you're struggling to control. That's the thing that you think you've got to control. And John Flavel, what he's telling us is, is that when you finally let go of all that, it's the most freeing thing in your life when you realize that God's got it. Man, you're gonna have the treasure of heaven coming to your heart every single day because you know you're not in control. It's not up to you. So God, what are you doing? Have you prayed that this week? What are you doing, God? What are you doing in this? Give me the desire and the capacity to join you in that. I see some of y'all right now, y'all still stuck right here. Now still, this right here has got you. Okay, so here we go. Do you need to pray? That thing right there that makes you anxious, that makes you angry, you need to let go of that. And you're sitting here, you're saying right now, I can't let go of that. I've been trying to let go of that. Okay, I hear you. And you know what? You're going to have to ask God to pull that out of your hands. So when you pray, you can just tell God, listen, I can't let go of this. And I need you to lovingly pull this out of my hands. Let's all stand this morning. See, because some of you, when we brought up that thing that you're most anxious about and you get most angry about, the reason that you hang on so tightly to that is because that you've been hurt before. This past hurt in your life that causes you to hang on so tightly. And it makes you so fearful. It makes you respond like that. So listen, the Holy Spirit's trying to take you back to that past hurt. And the Holy Spirit wants to help you with that. Because for some of you, you're saying, man, I tell you what, I just cannot forgive this person. Or I just cannot forgive myself. So God wants to grant you that forgiveness this morning. And that's why it's so important that you pray. So right now, let me pray with you. So God, Just think of that thing right there. God, just bring this before you. Some of you right now, that past hurt, it's just right up the forefront of your mind, and just bring that to the Lord. You may be, and listen, if that voice inside of you is like, you've done this a million times, doesn't matter. Don't listen to that voice. It does matter. Hear, hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. The Holy Spirit is telling you that you're a child of God, that you are forgiven of even this, that your identity is not connected to your worst mistakes. That your identity is in Christ. And he is greater. 
He is greater than your worst mistake. He is greater than your deepest hurt. He is the great I am. The Alpha and the Omega. He saw you before you were ever even born. He's marked out your life and he brought you here to this point today so you could be set free. So just pray something like this, God, help me. Grant me forgiveness. Grant me the ability to forgive and you fill in that blank. Some of you, you realize that you're holding on too tightly and trying to control something you can't control. You need to pray something like this, dear God, I can't let go of this. I've tried and I've tried. So today, Holy Spirit, just pull this out of my hands. Free me from this anxiety and this anger. Free me from myself and my desire to control. Maybe you're at the backside of the wilderness today. You made some terrible mistakes that got you here. And I'm telling you today, God's providence is working in this. You need to pray something like this. Holy Spirit, show me what you're doing here. In this moment, in this time, in this season of my life, open my eyes to see what you're doing. Grant me the ability and the desire to join you in that. See, some of you right now, you're going through the fire. You don't know if you're going to make it. And God has brought you here today to help you see that it's not about you making it. It's about what he's making in you. He's forming and he's molding and he's burning away the parts that are holding you back from joining him in what he's doing. So God, you are good. Can you pray that today in your heart? God, you are good. And I know and I believe that everything that you do is good. Even in this pain and even in that pain that I went through, God, that I know that you intended good. I know that what the devil meant to destroy me with, that you are developing me. God, help me join you in that. So we're about to have communion. And once again, the discussion questions are around the communion elements. And there's also some notes. There's extra. There's notes in here, actually, that weren't in the message and if you want the full notes, just send me an email and ask me for the notes or the sermon slide, and I'll be happy just to clip that on, attach it, and return it to you. So as always, if you're new here, um, 
communion is for people that are in Christ Jesus. If you're saved, if you're in Christ Jesus, then you're welcome to take communion with us. Uh, I would just encourage you to make sure everything's good between you and God and good between you and everybody else before you take communion. If you haven't, that's not there, then either make that right. If you can't make it right, then you might just want to hold off this Sunday. So if you go ahead and send someone from your family, the communion elements, you, want to, you can grab the discussion questions also and the notes if you need to fill out your book a little more. Or you can get a book if you haven't got a chance to get a book. They're around the communion elements as well. Hey, Sean. So let's go ahead and open up the top, and let's go ahead and take out the, the bread. I want you to just look at that bread for just a moment. So the night before he was betrayed, you can look at the screen now if you want to. The Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And this is going to become so much more important to you as we go through Exodus. To do this in remembrance of me. Because God wants us to remember. And that's one of the main reasons we take this every opportunity we get. Because here we're remembering the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We are remembering that our sins are totally forgiven. That we are in Christ. And our desire is to commune with him. So this is symbolic of his, of his body, but there's also something mysterious that happens in the moment of communion and in baptism. It doesn't save us, but there's just something beautiful and mysterious that happens there. So we value this time together as we join all the saints around the world that are taking communion today, the ones that have gone before us in heaven. It's a wonderful privilege that we have to commune. So just think about this. Look at that. Look back at that bread for just a moment. Let's think about the fact that your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, that you are totally forgiven because of the body, because of the death of Jesus Christ, that he paid the price that we could not pay. Man, what a wonderful blessing that is today. So we say a prayer together, so if you're comfortable, you can repeat this prayer after me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your body. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for renewal. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. You are my king, my God, my Lord, and my Savior.
Let's take and eat, church. Let's go ahead and open up the juice. So looking at the screen, if you would, please. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Mm, that's beautiful. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you look at the juice now, this is... The new covenant, ah, oh, it's great because it's the covenant of grace. We're going to go through the, the covenant of law that God gives the Israelites, and the covenant of grace is so beautiful when we learn this. To grace means that you are completely, 100% forgiven in Christ Jesus. That the atonement of his blood over your sin totally erases all of your sins. So if you're in Christ Jesus, that's what this represents here today. And think about this. When you eat and you drink, there's something there that we're agreeing with this. We're, we're taking this in. It's becoming a part of us. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your blood. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for forgiveness. I accept your forgiveness. You are my king, my Lord and my God, and my Savior. Let's drink. Let's all stand. I want to dismiss us in a word of prayer this morning. So before I pray and before you leave, I want you to think about something. And I'm going to think about it with you. Let's all think about this. God, what did you say to me today? As I was here in, in your church, with your people, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and I was listening, what did you say? Now, God, help me to live that. Can you pray that in your heart? As I leave out of here today, Help me to walk in what you're saying to me, God, to walk it out this week. Transform my life. Fill me with a desire to seek you every day. Can you pray that? You can look at the screen if you want to. You can read this with me if you want to. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace. In Jesus' name as you go, amen.